The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video, as seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of uh, The Video Insiders. I'm Dror Gill, and with me is my co-host, Mark Donegan. Hi, Mark. Hello, Dror. It's great to be back and talking about Kodex today. Yeah, it's wonderful to talk about uh, Codex, um, ever-changing uh, landscape uh, of Codex. And today we have two video insiders who are really experts and can help us navigate through this uh, maze of uh, Codex, especially through the, the minefield. The minefield, yeah. <laughs> That's right. right? <laughs> through the jungle. Through the jungle. You, you touch one of them, you want to use it, it looks good and shiny, but then boom, it explodes in your face. <laughs> boom, it explodes. Oh boy. Okay. All right. Okay. This is not, this is not a podcast about war, by the way. No, no, so. it's not, it's not. <laughs> there are no, there are no codec wars on this podcast. No, uh, Dan Rayburn al- always says there are no codec wars. <laughs> no platform wars, whatever. Okay. So uh, I would uh, like to welcome uh, to the podcast uh, Brian Alvarez and Vittorio Giovara. Brian was uh, with Amazon until recently, and Vittorio is uh, with uh, Vimeo. So hi, Brian and Vittorio, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, guys. So um, I'm Brian Alvarez. I was the principal product manager for encoding at Prime Video, and then was a principal product manager on platforms and some advanced capabilities with Fire TV uh, prior to leaving Amazon. Good to be here. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Vittorio. Thanks for having me. I'm a lead the video encoding team at Vimeo. Uh, we are the research team um, and we take care of anything that happens to the video once it is uploaded. So um, I deal with the code configuration, uh, streaming and storage and all this sort of stuff. Welcome, Vittorio. It's really great to have you. Yeah, yeah. And, if, um, and I'm sure we're going to have a wonderful discussion about Codex. So I'd like to start with your personal perspectives on the Codex landscape. Uh, tell us about uh, the Codex that you are actually using in production and how are they split in terms of the encodes you do or the streams that you deliver? Um, what's the breakdown between those Codex? Uh, Brian, maybe you'd like to start? Sure. So, you know, Prime Video supports AVC and HEVC. Originally, right, the service was all AVC um, and then brought on HEVC to start to cover UHD and then HDR. But increasingly, right, we our strategy there when I was uh, product managing is it, we would send HEVC wherever we could that was practical, right, for both to offer higher quality and to reduce, you know, delivery costs. Mm-hmm. And, and today you're still with AVC and HEVC. Correct. Yep. Prior to, to my, you know, leaving uh, Prime Video and moving over to Fire TV, right, we were definitely evaluating all the future options, right, and that we'll, we'll discuss. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and Vittorio, how about uh, Vimeo? So Vimeo has, uh, of course, a full lineup of uh, uh, H.264 streams that are the universal base for video. Uh, and then uh, depending on the type of content, we receive, uh, we switch uh, to HVC or AV1. If uh, if the video has uh, HDR metadata, we use uh, HVC main 10 uh, and use uh, HDR 10 uh, to provide the colorful uh, videos. And uh, 
if otherwise if the video is uh, a staff pick uh, which means it's uh, one of the videos that is uh, highlighted in on the home page uh, we also provide the ab1 encoding for all of them uh, since july what is your positioning around uh, ab1 i mean what is the um, what's the logic behind uh, doing the featured videos in ab1 is it because uh, Uh, they will be um, uh, streamed a lot more than other videos, so you want to uh, reduce their bit rate? Or is it uh, kind of, um, let's say, an experimental feature or an initial feature that you're starting with the featured videos and then uh, you'll see how it goes and then um, expand it uh, to, to more videos? Uh, it's a little bit of both. Uh, we use the AV1 exactly because uh, it, it is able to deliver uh, better quality than H.264. Uh, And uh, the videos, uh, the staff pick videos are usually the ones that are uh, watched the most. So uh, it makes sense that uh, we are able to provide a, a better viewing experience for those uh, videos. And it was also a, a way to be able to use the, the codec itself because um, the encodings of AV1 uh, take a lo much longer time than H.264. And even if the... The gap is uh, is closing. It's better to focus the um, encoding efforts on the content that is being going that is going to be watched the most. Yeah, definitely. And you're you're also primarily distributing into the browser, or what's the playback environment? Um, well, it's uh, predominantly in the browsers. Yes, uh, we have uh, a lot of mobile apps and the devices that we also support. Uh, and, and so on the Apple ecosystem, is, is AV1 supported or is that just limited to Windows and, and Chrome? AV1, right now, right now it's in Firefox and Chrome and uh, they, they also represent the, our, the majority of our uh, viewership. On Apple devices, we use uh, HVC when, uh, when the uh, video meets the, the requirements. When it has HDR. Exactly, yeah. Hey, Vittorio, I got a question for you. Did you guys go straight to AV1 or were you using VP9 before you went to AV1? We went straight to AV1. We believe it's, it's a much better codec and uh, uh, it offers us, uh, a few features that uh, VP9 does not, uh, uh, primarily the color properties. VP9 is, <laughs> is very limited in that regard and it needs to rely on the container for signaling correctly all the properties. Whereas AV1 is a full-fledged codec with everything that we need. And we know also when we were looking at uh, uh, VP9, AV1 was really close to release. So we just thought that we would be waiting for it to be out. Okay, that's nice. I mean, that's one less codec to worry about. <laughs> Now, Brian, you know, I'm, I, I'm curious uh, in your ecosystem um, at Amazon, So how did you look at codecs based on devices um, that you needed to support? Was there a bit of a matrix there where, you know, clearly not all devices support all the codec standards, right? So how, how did you think about that when you're trying to decide? Yeah, I mean, you know, our goal obviously, right, is to get content to every possible, you know, prime video user, right, regardless of device. So by default, right, that means supporting AVC. And I foresee in my own personal opinion, right, that AVC is going to have a long shelf life because there'll be so many customers with older devices, right, well into the future that only support AVC. And device deprecations are painful, right? If you try to de uh, deprecate a class of devices, you're, you're likely to lose customers, right? Even if you 
have efforts to retain them by either giving them a device or some incentive to to upgrade. And then, you know, for us uh, in Prime Video was really about reach. So we would just look at the device landscape and what gives us the greatest amount of reach. Compression efficiency is obviously nice. Um, there's also the factor of just being able to offer new features, right? So we, we wouldn't be able to really effectively do UHD and HDR with AVC, which led to adopting HEVC. It's also nice that like HEVC really started to grow, right, from the early living room devices into mobile. Um, so then there was the advantage of being able to give a better viewing experience to people on mobile, especially in data-constrained countries like India. Um, so it's it's a it is a matrix, um, but I think it's it's largely guided by how can we reach the largest group of customers and give them the best experience possible. Sure, yeah, I I, I think I agree with this uh, this sentiment. Uh, uh, the the codec itself should be used uh, as an enabler more than like you know a tag that you have. I use this codec. It's more what can I do with this codec and how much audience can I make happier. Yeah, that's an important point because I think in the early days of AV1, you know, maybe a year ago, 18 months ago, uh, people would kind of wave their um, AV1 support saying, hey, I do AV1, um, I can do AV1 um, uh, live, uh, you know. Of course, I'm using 100 computers <laughs> at the same time on the cloud, but hey, I can do AV1 in live. And, and uh, you know, it was more of a, a marketing uh, a spin around the, your encoding service, but... Uh, but now I think it's, it's, it's starting to, to mature, you know, and Vittorio, you're talking about providing a better experience um, to those browsers uh, who support AV1 for those uh, premium video that your editors uh, um, select. So it's really kind of a practical consideration and not just, you know, use it because, because you can. And I think that's, you know, when I was in Prime Video, that's where AV1 started to become very attractive, especially as the decode um, requirements started to lessen, right, with things like David. There was a gap in giving customers high quality video at low bit rates in the browser, right? HEVC was not that available in browsers. And so um, from my perspective, when I was in Prime Video, AV1 really had a sweet spot in being able to deliver that next-gen codec performance, right, to customers looking at Prime Video on browsers. And I know that Prime Video has really invested in HEVC. You know, in terms of whether it's AV1 or VVC, can you comment at all on uh, just what what the thoughts are there? Can you give some guidance like, uh, you know, are we going to see HEVC for some time to come? Is it possible that, you know, AV1 or VVC or LCEVC is, is going to begin to be rolled out? You know, I, I don't see HEVC going away for a couple reasons, right? Even if you could run, say, software AV1 decoding on some living room devices, which looks increasingly possible, uh, you're not going to be able to satisfy the studio level DRM requirements that somebody like Prime Video has, right? So, so there's still going to be, you know, millions, if not tens of millions of devices in the marketplace that the only way you can get 4K to in a secure way Right, with full uh, DRM protection is going to be HEVC. And people hold on to their devices for a surprisingly long time, right? So you can't just abandon those those folks. I think the other practicality too is, you know, as I'm sure we all you know are aware, you know, AV1, DVC, right, EVC, 
substantially heavier compute overhead. And especially if you're trying to move into, you know, on-demand encoding for long tail content or content that gets seldom used, it's less attractive, right? And we're, we're I think, starting to get into that sweet spot with HEVC where potentially on-demand encoding, right, makes a lot of sense. And for sure it does with, with AVC, right? Another reason why AVC, I think, will have a long life. I don't know that the delta in quality between HEVC and AV1 is really that big, at least not from what I've personally observed. Um, it has its benefits, but I wouldn't say it's that much better, right, that you would want to just abandon uh, HEVC for AV1. Yeah, code comparisons we know are in the eye of the beholder. Uh, there's so many parameters you can play with and content and settings, and and you see two different, you know, um, academic um papers, you know, one saying it's 40% better and one saying it's exactly the same in terms of compression efficiency. And, and you know, the truth is probably somewhere in between. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, the, the fact you mentioned uh, regarding the software uh, decode, uh, and, and I wanted to touch this point because I was thinking of it from a perspective of uh, performance. Uh, does your device have uh, enough CPU power in order to decode in software, or does it need a hardware decoder? And then if it needs a hardware decoder, it means you need to wait for a generation of that device that supports a new codec like AV1 or maybe in the future uh, VVC. But you're bringing on uh, another perspective to that, which is software decode is less secure than hardware decode. So for premium content, you want hardware decode and it's not only because of the performance, it's because of the security, right? It's a huge factor for Prime Video, right? And I would imagine for other services, right, that are either creating their own, you know, professional content, right, or have a mix of professional and Hollywood and other premium content. All of those video operations have to happen in the trusted execution environment. Does that ultimately, Brian, come down to um, because there needs to be a hardware root of trust and that needs, you know, and that's in the silicon? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, we're, we're bound by a couple different constraints, right? So one of them is Movie Lab's security requirements, right? Especially in place of Prime Video that offers the Hollywood content. And when you look at the studios, right, the, the Movie Lab's requirements and even individual studios requirements are that there has to be this you know, below the how uh, handling of video information, right? So all the decode has to happen basically in the trusted execution environment or the T. So it's to protect, you know, I mean, everything even down to the video frame buffer is basically operating at that level, right? So you, you don't expose the bits or the pixels until essentially it goes to be drawn on the screen or it goes to the HDMI output. And so, you know, there's liability implications, obviously, if you don't do that. Um, and then, you know, in general, because of the DRM involved, the DRM also operates in that that level, typically. Um, and so for security, right, like you, you just have to support that. And, and I've yet to see, maybe the industry might move to address this, the ability to do software video decoding in the T. Right. Typically, it's tied to either hardware or a very low-level software decode that's you know part of the operating system. Vittorio, does Vimeo? I mean, Vimeo must have some content that you know, if essentially can be free and in the clear. But you must also have some that needs to be protected, right? 
I have very controversial ideas on this topic. Uh, I believe that DRM is not nothing secure. It just gives the illusion of security and protection, but it's anything in software or hardware can be broken with enough skill. Having said that, uh, we try to not be involved in, in that bacle and re rely on third party uh, to supply that uh, when a client really needs that level of compliance. When you moved to uh, uh, AV1, when you added support for AV1, did you run into issues with uh, supporting it, packaging it in streaming protocols or applying DRM to it uh, because it's a new codec? Was all of the other ecosystem compatible with the new codec or you ran into issues with, with those um, uh, components that, that complement the video encoding? I have to say Vima is in a really uh, unique situation because uh, most of the software that we use is uh, built in-house. So everything uh, except the encoder software itself and the decoder, uh, which is FFmpeg, is built in-house and can be modified on the fly uh, for any kind of, of a, uh, need that uh, we might have. HDR, HVC, uh, everyone, we were able to modify the, our packager to support uh, all the, all the features that we needed. Now we've been talking about uh, on the on the decode side, so the the player side, you know, software versus hardware. Um, but it's it's interesting that on the encoding side, um, as codecs are getting more complex and just requiring a whole lot more compute. Ironically, we've been, of course, spending the last um, seven, eight, even maybe ten years, sort of switching from black box encoders to software, and uh, now there's kind of a path where we can see that hardware is going to begin playing a role again. Um, obviously that's going to look very different. Those are not just going to be black box, you know, purpose built encoders, but there's, you know, GPU approaches, there's FPGA, there's ASICs. Um, talk to us about, you know, what, what you guys are seeing in your respective um, networks and even just sort of the industry at large, like, is it true that GPUs and FPGAs, ASICs are, are starting to be thought about? Or are you just totally focused on CPU? Or, you know, what what do you think? Uh, Vimeo is, um, is mostly focused on, on the cloud. Uh, um, and we use uh, CPU encoding. Uh, it's, it's true that the, the, the GPU uh, are more and more um, performant. But uh, um, I, I feel like that the whole data model is kind kind of a stretch and it's not working very well on that regard even so like having a, a gpu in the cloud uh, for these kind of experiments would be uh, outrageously expensive and and so if we do focus only on uh, cpu encoding but do you think if you had uh, an order of magnitude more uh, videos coming in right because you, you are a platform of user generated content as the volume grows, you know, does it make sense uh, to consider other platforms that are, let's say, more uh, power efficient? Because, you, you know, you can outgrow the CPU if you have like too many videos. Well, uh, you can have, we can take a different approach. Uh, and we were mentioning this before, uh, maybe tweak the, your encoder configuration. For example, one great solution is to enable chunked encoding and uh, being able to spin off uh, smaller machines that uh, can be uh, discarded after use uh, uh, makes a lot of sense for when uh, when encoding at, at scale. And I think, you know, I, I can speak a bit to this too. 
the I'm very much on the David Ronka school of thought that we're reaching this non-sustainable level of increased encoder complexity, right, for uh, decode efficiency. And while I can't speak to what Prime Video is doing, I can say that, like, well, I was there and I'm, st I'm still a firm believer of this. Um, I definitely see a future, right, in, in alternates to, to CPU. Let's even say x86 CPU, right? Like, I think there's absolutely the uh, a good opportunity in both moving to ARM um, as well as, you know, for really high-performance FPGA and, and ASICs. I mean, fundamentally, you know, I look at, you know, chunk encoding and, and distributed encoding or parallel encoding as a brute force solution. We're just throwing a bunch of boxes, right, and, and instances of a problem and just subdividing down right into smaller and smaller chunks. And, like, sure, we could keep doing that, but in my mind, that's not the elegant way to do this, right? If we can do more work per given resource, that makes a lot more sense to me. Um, eventually, it's all down to cost, right? How much does it cost to encode a video, uh, all of the videos you need to encode into all of the formats and ABR layers, etc., that you need to create um, on a CPU versus uh, a GPU or an FPGA? And if you don't run your own data center, then that translates into the cost of those uh, platforms that are offered on the cloud. One one thing to consider, though, you know, in in the case of uh, you know Prime Video, right? The you look at the cost of encoding versus the cost of delivery, and delivery is you know by far the bigger cost, right? So you, there are significant savings to be gained, right, by reducing the delivery costs, and they, they more than cover right the encode costs. That's interesting because I, I know there are certain regions of the world uh, where delivery costs are just significantly higher than other parts of the world. And I'm thinking of Dan Rayburn's latest um, CDN, you know, pricing survey that he does. Like bandwidth is getting down to fractions of a penny. So at the extreme high end in terms of volume, so like Amazon Prime Video and Netflix and, you know, the other services and Vimeo, I'm sure you must be in you know, certainly a similar sort of range. Bandwidth is is <laughs> meaningful, even at fractions and fractions of a penny per gig transferred. But there's still so many distributors that are so far below that, you know, that at the end of the day, um, you know, on a percentage basis, you save them 30, 40%, and that translates to maybe tens of thousands of dollars, you know. Um, meanwhile, they're running these computer operations um, that, uh, are getting more and more expensive um, because their volume of videos can, you know, might be high in terms of the number of videos coming in to their to their service or, you know, their platform. Um, they're just not getting played a lot, and uh, it seems to me like this is where these these new hardware architectures, um, whether it's ASIC FPGA, you know, or just more efficient GPU um, on x86. It could play a role, but I do see a chicken and, and the egg because it's true. If you're going to own your own infrastructure, you know, you have to go install all of these and now they're setting idle and, you know, or you have to find a cloud that a public cloud that has a sufficient number deployed that you can access. So I suppose that's also going to be a little bit of a, of an, of an initial challenge here. On that, in that regard, uh, like the, the decoding cost uh, is, uh, 
usually very little compared to the encoder cost because that's that's by design and uh, the, the the most of the of the problem relies in in the uh, encoding as uh, the the decoder side will follow to whatever the encoder will decide uh and yeah it's 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 a self fulfilling uh prophecy because uh, the more the more content is produced in a certain encoder the more devices will be able to digest it and uh, i i don't know if you if the um, the, sp- the specification of the new macbooks uh, are already uh, popular the, they do mention a wide support uh, in for hardware decoding in uh, a, a variety of uh, codecs and hvc uh, av1 and h64 are all there already you know the, the other part of it too is i, I see a general move away from you know cpu because we also have to do an increasing amount of machine learning and computer vision analysis on video and that's also fairly inefficient to run on a cpu so you know i i see the need in the future to really have specialized instance types and hardware right for each step of the 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 chain if you will right like obviously you got to do some analysis with with ml and cv you might have to do some you know image processing or some other type of like SDR to HDR conversion, for example, right, or some kind of color spaced mapping, and then the the raw encode itself. And it just, to me, seems inherently more efficient to have dedicated architectures for each of those steps versus trying to cram it all into a CPU. And then the video needs to pass between different machines. Yeah, I mean, and that's the other challenge, I would say that we, we could, you know, discuss it, you know, if you want, but there's definitely also the problem in cloud compute right now that you're moving data around between instances far too much. You know, I would infer from your most recent comment there, Brian, that the benefits of hardware, again, whether it's FPGA, ASIC, et cetera, apply to um, VOD equal to live, even though I think a lot of us, we kind of, you know, sort of delineate like, okay, live, yes, hardware is definitely, but hey, if it's VOD, we can just throw CPU at it. But what I heard you just say is that, you know, there's complexities that are coming or even are in the workflow now where it doesn't really matter. Is that true? That we shouldn't just be splitting this discussion based on live versus VOD? Absolutely. And and the lines are blurring too, right? I mean, doesn't happen often, but like one of the challenges, right, with premium content is you have a release date, right, that's fixed and immovable, and it doesn't always mean that you get the master a month before that, right? Uh, sometimes the stuff that literally they're working in post production to, you know, a few days before release. So like throughput is really important in VOD, and I think sometimes people don't realize that. Um, also, the sheer volume. Right, like you look at like the catalog size of somebody like you know Prime Video. Um, there's a lot of content coming in, and you can't always just queue it and wait for availability. So being able to do things quickly is is definitely beneficial. But what we're also seeing, right, um, is there's a blurring between live and VOD. There, there's typically a lot of VOD content now that is used as a enhancement for live and linear. Um, and that stuff also has to be processed very quickly. Sometimes you're getting files, you know, post-produced files that uh, are coming in hours before basically a live event, right? Or, or some linear feed. So, you know, it's, it's a combination of everything. You know, increasingly, I, I don't know about, you know, other streaming services, but for, for Prime Video in particular, since we're offering such a wide selection of services, right? We have, you know, channels for VOD, 
right? SVOD, uh, linear, and live sports. That architecture basically looks like everything that's in the video industry. And, and you mentioned, Brian, before the concept of on-demand encoding. And I think this is sometimes called just-in-time encoding. For that um, segment of the content that is not uh, viewed uh, a lot, so uh, you keep it, uh, in, instead of uh, keeping all of the different versions and encodes for hundreds of types of devices, you just keep the, the master. And then uh, when somebody requests this title, you uh, encode it on demand, right? Yeah, I, I really see this as a very good solution for somebody like Prime Video, right, that has a really large library. Um, I've traditionally found that like the 80-20 rule really holds, right? Like roughly 20% of your content generates 80% of your views, yet we're expending the same amount of storage and compute, right, on the other 80% of the content. It, it doesn't logically make a lot of sense. It's intuitive that we should be moving to a model where the resources are allocated to the things that get watched the most. And if something increases in popularity, right, or consumption, then then you go in and add the, you know, bit rates or, or formats as needed. So on-demand and just-in-time encoding, and uh, I think it's just as attractive as packaging in just-in-time. Mm -hmm. And Vittorio, in Vimeo, do you use any JIT encoding? Um, we're, we're working on it. Um, it's uh, in, the, um, in the pipeline. Uh, I, I wanted to add to the previous uh, discussion about uh, VOD and live. It's, it's almost much, much harder to make a good live than making a good uh, VOD because for VOD you can throw as much CPU as, as needed while for live you have so much to take care into consideration, uh, latency, uh, delay, uh, and, and of course good quality. And from the encoder's perspective, it's, it's much, much more complex than, than a video, VOD. Yeah, I agree. The live stream just keeps coming in. Uh, Mark, you, you remember who said it just keeps coming in? Uh, I'm at a loss. It was Newman, Newman. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's because right. Seinfeld <laughs> asked him, you know, why is it... Why is it that every time somebody starts shooting around in a McDonald's, it turns out to be a mailman? And then Newman says, well, it's because the mail, it just keeps coming in it every day, all the time, coming keeps in. coming in. You can't do anything about it. So oh. it's exactly the same with the live stream. That's it just right. keeps coming in, right, in real That's time. Right. And you have to process each one of those packets. No delay. You can't stop it. No You're just 24-7, no right? Yeah, yeah. It can drive you crazy. Well, Vittorio, you have a team, uh, a, a Kodak team, and I'm curious, are you working with vendors to uh, uh, optimize solutions that you've licensed or, you know, maybe even help them in development? Or are you primarily uh, leveraging open source? What does that look like uh, for you? Historically, uh, Vimeo has been always very close to uh, communities and mo most of the team members are part of the of our open source community ffmpeg is basically almost what defined this industry because uh, of being able to uh, upload anything and you're able to decode it it's just just thinking about this is, in, is incredible if you think about it and um, uh, we found that we found actually that the the encoder support uh, from the open source community uh, such as x x4 x5 and ravi are um, among the best in class uh, uh, we can provide and uh, it also integrates uh, they integrate very well with our approach of everything in house 
so we can modify it if needed. And uh, it has also been the case that uh, the community itself helped uh, resolve uh, a bug that we found because uh, when everybody was working towards improving the software, it, it's a nice uh, it's a nice feeling. So in terms of these, you know, when you're looking at new standards and, and you've already adopted AV1, uh, then uh, can you share uh, which like, you know, because there's a couple different uh, open source projects for AV1, which one you're using and then, you know, how you chose that or why you chose that particular project over another one? Yeah, we chose uh, Ravi um, and we didn't go with the LibAOM or SVT, everyone. There are a couple of, of reasons about it. The first one is that we wanted a clean room implementation. Um, Ravi is uh, completely written from scratch, and it's also written in a um, safe and robust language, Rust. And we wanted to explore the how 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 that would would have worked. And then there is the um, the team that is uh, backing the that actually that was backing the the project. Uh, Mozilla uh, has been working very closely with the uh, with the XIF team that was the code research team uh, in Mozilla before they were le le let go in in August uh, due to you know Mozilla restructuring and we're still supporting uh, the project um, it's, um, it's it's still ongoing the the results are, are there it's it's uh, probably true that. Uh, um, Ravi could be better, and I think it will it will get there uh, with enough uh, resources, and uh, we will see uh, where where this is going. Interesting, and uh, you know, Brian, how did you guys look at this in terms of leveraging commercial solutions, or even just developing in house, or leveraging open source projects across the various codex standards? Yeah, this is one of those areas, right, where uh, Prime Video is famously very. Uh, secretive and so there's not really that much i can share but what i can say is like you know as many things in amazon we're really driven by giving customers the best experience so we don't have um, any sort of dogma right around codex or you know open source versus you know uh, in-house versus you know third-party developed um, codex it's really about finding um, the best way to to deliver good quality video to customers yeah, I think at the end of the day, that's a that's a good approach for all of us, right? You know, if we're delighting our customers, exactly. Uh, you know, the tools we use, how we get there. Obviously, there's you know more than one way, um, but that's what really matters is our customers being, you know, served well. Yeah, we need to make the customers happy. So, uh, Brian, Vittorio, this has really been an uh, amazing conversation. Uh, I'm sure our listeners learned a lot about uh, which codecs are being used and why, which is also very important. Um, and now I would like to kind of shift the conversations a few years ahead in time. If you would uh, take out the crystal ball and try to uh, envision uh, how the codec landscape will look like, let's say three, four, five years from now. We, we're uh, not going to uh, check you, you know, in our... Uh, 267th episode, which will air in uh, July uh, 2024. But um, just uh, interesting to get uh, your feeling on, you know, based on what we have now and what is emerging, because we have AV1, AV2 will be coming out, and then MPEG 
uh, this year released uh, uh, VVC and is going to release EVC. And there's LCEVC, which uh, can be added to different codecs. And of course, the things you've already deployed, AVC, HEVC, and AV1. So the question is, how do you see it uh, going uh, from here and where will we be uh, in a few years in terms of uh, codec adoption? If my, my crystal balls is using data that uh, we have. So uh, it's saying that the problem we are facing with future codec will not be technical. It will be mostly a matter of how how bad is the licensing scheme. Of the <laughs> uh, like HVC, I, I love HVC. It's one of the most advanced te technical codecs. Uh, it was the first one to release 10-bit in the main profile and remove interlacing video, which everybody needs to be thankful for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, that's true. But it, it got plagued with the, uh, such an unclear licensing scheme and the the current status that uh, VVC is coming out and the, what's happening in MPEG is not showing much difference for the future. We will either see a, a, a continuous uh, um, separation between browser vendors and broadcasting industry, or we will see some broadcasting industry start to adopt uh, additional codec support. Additional, you mean like uh, open source codec? Yes. I think that's a really astute observation. I totally agree. I, I see the lines of um, demarcation splitting uh, the broadcast on one side and the browser on the other. <laughs> and it seems like, you know, obviously H.264 cuts across all of those platforms, but, um, you know, in terms of AV1 and potentially AV2 and, you know, other variants that might be coming, there's a high probability that they are going to sort of own the browser. Um, and then in the broadcast side, uh, it seems like there's a very strong possibility that that's going to continue in the direction of the MPEG um, standards. Interesting, interesting. Brian, what do you think? Yeah, my, my take is a slightly different perspective. You know, we saw, right, like, for example, the lifespan of MPEG-2 versus the lifespan of AVC, or, or, or not the lifespan, but the the time to introduction, right? And then it shortened between AVC and HEVC. And it seems basically like we're going to be getting new generations of codecs in a shorter and shorter time frame, which I think is going to put us in a position where we're going to have quite a lot of codecs coexisting, right? And from my perspective, especially when you're delivering premium content primarily into living room, it's going to come down to what is supported in the silicon. And it's it's unclear to me right now, right? What say somebody like MTK, right? Or Amlogic's gonna put in their living room SOCs. It seems, I think, intuitive that they would probably continue down the MPEG route because they're very familiar with that. But now we've seen that they've had to add AV1, right? In, in uh, 2020. To support YouTube, that's right. Right, YouTube and 8K YouTube and things like that, yeah. yeah. Exactly, and so, you know, I think we're just gonna see a, a really fractured landscape where for lots of different reasons, right? Services are gonna pick uh, their own codec that may not be necessarily like the dominant one. And they'll coexist. It'll add a lot of complexity and I'm pretty sure a lot of people's storage costs are gonna increase. But you know, uh, I'll reiterate again, for somebody like Prime Video, storage and encoding 
are expensive, but nowhere near as expensive as delivery. And so the, there'll always be, I think, an acceptance to having a multi-codec world so long as you're delivering savings and quality, basically, to customers in delivery. Maybe it's also a problem uh, that will solve itself because H.264 um, uh, will be uh, royalty-free in a few years when the last patent expires. And so maybe that will be forever the universal codec that every browser, every device will have to support. And then there will be additional codecs on top of it. The, that's right. But it, it, it kind of becomes the lowest common denominator. You know, like you can broadcast MPEG-2 or even H.263 today. You know, it, it will work, but nobody wants to use it because, as, as we said, we want to delight our customers and give them the premium experience that they expect. Um, so AVC will be there, but a service provider will have to make a choice. You know, do I go, do I fall back to the lowest common denominator or do I have a solution that can give me more uh, with a codec with better compression efficiency? And I think, Mark, this division you, you presented between broadcast and, uh, and browser, uh, the, the problem is, is, is convergence. You know, the, the broadcasters are doing OTT streaming to mobile devices and to browsers. And, uh, and then you have, um, you know, Netflix and Amazon Prime and all of those uh, OTT providers are streaming to televisions um, that are, you know, primarily broadcast reception uh, devices. Well, it's a multi-codec world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And it always will be <laughs> moving forward. <laughs> it's it's great actually the the browser uh, what they implemented in the recent um, last year or so. Uh, they 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 are offering ways to uh, actually switch uh, codec between uh, uh, the the coding session. Um, in uh, so you can for example have a base layer of H six four up to ten eighty p, and then you could mix and match. Uh, with the different codecs, the 2K and 4K profiles, for example. And it would be really great if this kind of functionality could be exported to, to, the, to the devices as well. It's, it's much more complex than a browser, of course, but it, it's something I'm looking forward to. Mm, interesting. So not just spatial and temporal scalability, you can have codec scalability. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my understanding is actually like... Um... I believe iOS devices do this, right? You can switch between AVC and HEVC. Yeah, all the browsers support it now. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's a super exciting. Uh, we're all going to um, have a lot to do for many, many more years. So <laughs> that's what I hear. That's oh, what job I security. From this. <laughs> Great. Job security. Yeah. Yes, 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 for sure, for sure. Well, this was really a great discussion, and uh, you know, thank you for for um, sharing your your candid thoughts and uh, your observations. I know that um, this is you know really valuable to our audience. So, uh, uh, thank you again, gentlemen, for for joining us. It's really great to have you on the show. This was a real honor. Thanks for inviting me on. I really appreciate the time you spent with us. Thank you, Brian and Vittorio, uh, and we'll uh, meet all of you in uh, the next episode of the Video Insiders. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders podcast. If you'd like to appear on the show, just send an email to thevideoinsiders at beamer.com. That's B-E-A-M-R.com with a brief description on what you're working on and why you think it's interesting for our audience. This podcast is sponsored by Beamer Imaging. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity that they represent.